Well, if you have God's Word with you, please turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, and we will be taking up verse 7 all the way to verse 19 for our passage this evening. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning of verse 7 all the way to verse 19. May God plant His eternal Word into our souls. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, they always do go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that you would establish and confirm this truth in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Reveal to us what we do not know, perfect in us what is lacking, and strengthen in us what we do know. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this section in Hebrews illustrates the way the Bible everywhere addresses us and comes to us. There is a strong note of urgency, a note of solemnity, a note of profound seriousness that is characteristic throughout the Bible. You can read of it in the Gospels, you'll find it in the book of Acts, and you'll find it virtually in every letter of the New Testament. This is the idea. Flee from the wrath to come, Matthew 3.7. John the Baptist, the first preacher in the New Testament, warned the people the same message Jesus gave, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. That was the spirit of their message. There was a note of desperate urgency, of profound seriousness, and of solemnity. This same note of urgency is seen in the first sermon given in the book of Acts. As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.40, he says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. When you turn to the preaching of the Apostle Paul, you will find the very same thing. In his famous sermon in Athens, he concluded by saying, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. You will find this all throughout Paul's letters as well. For example, in 2 Corinthians 6.2, he pressed the call of the gospel upon his hearers. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And this note of urgency, 
and of seriousness and of solemnity is very characteristic in the letter to the Hebrews. You remember how chapter 2 powerfully puts it, where his hearers are urged and exhorted to pay attention to these things, lest they drift away and neglect so great a salvation. And now the entirety of the section that we read in Hebrews is dripped with this note of solemn warning that the Holy Spirit says and calls upon us to regard today as the day for hearing the voice of God of salvation is a solemn matter indeed. There are thousands upon thousands who regret not hearing the voice of God today who are living in a Christless and hopeless eternity. The urgency of today is like a hammer driving its nail to our hearts again and again and again throughout the section in verse 7, in verse 13, in verse 15, and then twice in chapter 4, verse 7. This text is virtually crying out to us, Oh, eternity! Eternity, press upon my heart the reality of God's judgment. Do not permit me to put off until tomorrow, for tomorrow may never come. As Pastor Eric in his sermon last Lord's Day talked about this trivial, happy-go-lucky mood people tend to have today, it is this very same mood that is vehemently put off by these strong warnings. Lighten up, they say in our preaching. Why so serious? And yet, if we are not to warn in our preaching, we would not only have to rip out most of the pages of our Bibles, but more terrifying, millions of souls would be carried into the eternity of torment as they happily walk towards it, ignorant and blinded by the warnings throughout. Here, we need to understand the place of warning in the church, since this is repeated so often in the book of Hebrews. The scriptures clearly teach that when a professing Christian walks away from his profession that he was never truly a true believer to begin with. As we read in in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. And so the apostate needs to be shown his true colors. Otherwise, he will go on thinking that he is a believer by virtue of his profession and his membership in the church. But the Lord not only wants to use warning for false believers, but also uses warning in the lives of true believers to spur them on continually to see their need of Christ. Now, I'm a convinced Calvinist. I believe in the eternal salvation and the security for believers. Yet I also believe that true Christians persevere. And in order to encourage the saints to persevere, the Lord uses encouragements as well as warnings to bring us all the way home. Listen, heaven is promised to the redeemed, but the way to heaven is not easy. That is why the Christian needs both encouragements and warnings. The great Puritan John Owen said it this way, that there is not only exhortation, but dehortation. And what he means by dehortation is warning, taking heed of something that is of danger to them. And so in Hebrews, there are both encouragements and warnings. On the one hand, there are encouragement. There are lots of them in Hebrews. Let us look to Jesus. Let us run this race together. But on the other hand, there is serious warning. Take heed, lest this and this happen to you. Now, as you remember from the beginning of chapter 3, it began with a strong exhortation to consider Jesus the apostle 
and high priest of our confession to fix our gaze on Christ. And amongst the reasons the author gave and why we must look to Jesus, he said we must consider him for he is the key to enduring to the end. Notice how he ended verse 6 with a strong admonition. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. It is apparent that these Hebrew Christians were tempted to turn back. They were in distress and they were in great danger of faint heartedness. The signs were there of them drifting away. And some of them were beginning to waver in their faith and falter in the midst of a Christian community. And with the strong admonition, if we hold fast, firm unto the end, ringing in their ears, the author now launches in a full-scale warning. And his concern is all set up for chapter 4 for his readers to enter into the promised rest that is in Jesus Christ. My prayer tonight is that these texts that we read will come to you with the same intensity and the same solemnity with which the writer preaches to them so that you would more resolutely be steadfast in following Christ to the end. Now our passage begins with a long quotation from Psalm 95, verse 7 to 11. And then it's cited three more times, once more in chapter 3 and twice in chapter 4. The background to Psalm 95 is the period in the history of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now there is no doubt that the wilderness experience is one of the saddest stories ever to be read on the pages of the history of God's Word. Never did a nation occupy a more prouder position than the children of Israel on the morning when they stood victorious on the shores of the Red Sea. They were just delivered from a powerful tyrant by a series of miracles from the Lord Almighty. Pharaoh's hand had finally been broken. And they had witnessed one of the most powerful miracles of all when they saw the waters being parted on the Red Sea as they crossed the Red Sea and they looked back and they saw the entire Egyptian army sunk into the waters of death and now with egypt forever behind them the promised land stood before them oh how they sang and how they exalted in the power of the lord upon them what promise and what hope was before them and i'm sure that many were dreaming of vineyards and olive yards and and fig trees and a settled home all of which lay within two or three months of an easy march But of that vast army of more than 600,000 fighting men who stood in triumph that day in the Red Sea, two, only two, entered the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. What happened to the rest of them? Well, in verse 17, amongst a series of rhetorical questions, Moses, uh, the author asks, now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Imagine that, my friends. Only two out of more than 600,000 men died, one by one in the desert waste of the wilderness, all in the span of 40 years. Now, one commentator tried to calculate how many funerals there were every day for that many people to die in a period of 40 years. And he begins with the number of adult males we are told that departed from Egypt, which was 603,550. Then adds in likely number adult women and calculates that on average, 90 Israelite adults 
would have died every day for 40 years until every generation was gone. Entire generation was gone. I, I can only begin to imagine the dreary scene of everyday life in the wilderness where the perpetual sounds of grief would be moaning all throughout the wilderness camp. This has been called the cemetery chapter of the Bible. Daily they were reminded of what we so often forget, that the wages of sin is death. The wilderness experience is emblematic of many things. It is emblematic of unrest, of aimlessness, of rebellion, of regret, of miscarriage of life. And so the writer of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95 essentially says, remember the wilderness generation, remember them, apply these truths to your own hearts. But actually the way he says it is much more forceful than that. For it is not he who is speaking, but the Holy Spirit who is speaking to them. If you go back to Psalm 95, it begins with the inscription, a Psalm of David. But it is introduced in Hebrews as the Holy Spirit says. There is no contradiction here. Whether it's David or Paul or John, it is God the Holy Spirit who speaks. And the choice of using the formula as the Holy Spirit says has the effect of demanding serious attention and emphasizing the utmost solemn warning from this passage for it is none other than the Holy Spirit warning them and us in this passage of Scripture. For the author of Hebrews, or for any other apostle for that matter, the message of Scripture is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so just as a quick side note, what a difference knowing this makes in our Bible reading, especially in those parts in the Old Testament where we feel far removed from the context, but the Holy Spirit continues to speak with dynamic application to our hearts today. We should note too the present tense of this verb says. He says that while these events in the wilderness experience happened long ago, the scriptures still speak with the same authority and relevance than it did back then. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, this word spoken here, the event spoken of the wilderness experience, this warning given in this passage is spoken to you today by the Holy Spirit. What then is the warning that the Holy Spirit wants us to take heed of? What is the message that he is speaking to us today? He wants us to see that the Israelites could not enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now, after this lengthy quotation from Psalm 95, the initial commentary of it is laid out in verses 12 to 19. What, what I want you to notice is that this unit is framed by the repetition of the verb to see and the noun unbelief. Look at verse 12. Take care. See to it, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And notice how the section closes in verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The choice of the word unbelief tells us that the writer intended to use this literary technique called inclusio to serve as bookends to the section to stress that the cause of their wilderness experience was unbelief. And so we see how unbelief then is a barrier that shuts out the blessings of rest. Now I want to I note a few conditions in which unbelief thrives with us as it did with the children of Israel. One of the first things that leads to unbelief 
is a murmuring spirit. A murmuring spirit. Look at verse 8. We read in Hebrews 3.8, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. These two words, provoke and trial, when you look at Psalm 95.8, is rendered, Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness. And these names recall different occurrences of the wilderness experience. For example, let's turn to Exodus, Exodus 17. Go to Exodus 17. And look at verse 2. This is the first occurrence. There they were in Rephidim with no water, dying of thirst, and they began to complain with Moses. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And then look at verse 7. And so God authorized Moses to smite the rock. And as a result, he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now this is not the only instance where the Israelites were grumbling and murmuring against Moses and God. This was very characteristic of them throughout the wilderness wanderings. One chapter earlier, go to verse, uh, chapter 16. In verse 2, where the people arrived in the desert across the sea and immediately began complaining. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses, it says, and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Even when the Lord graciously provided manna from heaven daily, the people still continue to complain and murmur and grumble. But the most serious rebellion occurred in Numbers chapter 14. Go to, go to actually Numbers 13. You see in Numbers 13 that God has sent out one scout from each of the tribes in order to spy out the promised land in preparation for their entry. And the spies come back, and they gave a sobering report. Numbers 13, look at verse 27. Thus they told him, and they said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who lived in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified, fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And despite, despite the pleadings of Caleb and Joseph, to not rebel against the Lord and to not, to not fear the people for the Lord was with us, we see that the people murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Psalm 7840 perfectly captures the spirit of murmuring in them. It says how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and they pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember His power. This grumbling heart recounted by the psalmist is characteristic and symptomatic of Israel's whole attitude of deep-seated rebellion and unbelief. A murmuring, a complaining, and discontent heart is one of the worst things that can consume one's life. This murmuring heart has a skeptical and fault-finding spirit within them. 
Look at the Israelites. Whatever chance they got, they criticized Moses and Aaron. And as they were criticizing Moses and Aaron, they were really grumbling against the Lord. Now, this fault-finding spirit is in us. We find all kinds of things to find fault in the church. Now, I realize as a pastor, I am no perfect pastor. You guys know that. Nor are any of our pastors and elders. Nor are we a perfect church by any means. There are things in the church that are not as they ought to be. And things that we can always get better and should be by God's grace. But beloved, it will ruin a soul. And it will be the curse of that man as it did for those Israelites when he is given to murmuring and to fault finding. It is this critical, skeptical, fault finding spirit that God is warning us of us today. As many things as they're they're wrong with our church, it is still God's church. It is still God's house. It is still God's people. And in spite of the fact that throughout the 40 years in the wilderness, they saw God's mighty works, his gracious provisions, one petty thing after another, they murmured and criticized. One day it was, there's not enough bread. Well, God provided bread. Then on the next criticism, there's no water. God provides water. On to the next thing to be critical over. The land is good, but it's too difficult, too much to overcome. You see, instead of moving forward with confidence in the power of God and the goodness of God, they put God to the test. Instead of finding fault, instead of murmuring and criticizing, they should have looked up to the glorious goodness of God. We can be this way too. We can be blinded by the goodness of God and instead of trusting Him, we can set ourselves up as judges over God and only put our trust in God when he gives us what we demand. This murmuring spirit then is an evidence of unbelief and ingratitude. But complaining and fault finding is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. If we murmur and complain, it indicates a very poor knowledge of God. And so here's a second condition in which unbelief thrives under not knowing God and his ways. Look at verse 10. They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. How astonishing that these Israelites did not know the ways of God after all that they had seen and heard and received from his hand. Over 40 years, their knowledge of God and his ways had not increased one iota because their murmuring hearts blinded their spiritual eyes. How, we could ask. Could they have not known his ways? They were taught by the Lord himself in lessons illustrated by his powerful miracles, which came to them daily in the form of manna from heaven and the water from the flinty rock. They ought to have learned something. The problem was that they had seen without knowing. They failed to consider and perceive the truth about God and his works and what it meant for their own souls. Well, what is this knowledge of God's ways? Let me quote to you George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of all time. In his sermon, The Knowledge of Jesus Christ, The Best Knowledge, he preaches from 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is what he said concerning the word know. By which word know, we are not to understand a bare historical knowledge. For to know that Christ was crucified by his enemies at Jerusalem in this manner only 
will do us no more service than to know that Caesar was butchered by his friends at Rome. But the word know means to know so as to approve of him. As when Christ says, verily I know you not, I know you not so as to approve of you. It signifies to know him so as to embrace him in all of his offices, to take him to be our prophet, priest, and king, so as to give up ourselves wholly to be instructed, saved, and governed by him. It also implies an experiential knowledge of his crucifixion so as to feel the power of it and to be crucified unto the world. Now, Whitfield points to two important details about true knowledge that is relevant to Israel's failures to know God's ways. One is approving of God. While they enjoyed God's works and the benefits of God's miracles and provisions, they did not approve him as to embrace him as their covenant Lord and God. And the second is this experiential knowledge of God where their hearts were mended to God in such a way that they loved Him and they trusted in Him and they were grateful to Him. But this wilderness generation, despite seeing God's ways, did not know Him in this way. This was not a matter of evidence or a lack thereof, but of unwillingness. They did not want to know. And so they refused to acknowledge the plain truth about God. They were willfully ignorant of God's ways. They refused to trust Him for their physical needs. And this willful ignorance of God's ways always has at its core this attitude of, I can do it better myself. I can do it better myself is what leads to the spirit of unbelief to go astray in their hearts. I don't need God. I don't need His help. I don't need his love. I don't need his grace. I don't need his direction. I can do it by myself. I stand on my own. That leads to a spirit of rejection and unbelief. This is what the Israelites did. They forsook the fountain of living water and went up to the hills to hew out for themselves, as the prophet Jeremiah writes, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Well, are we better? Are we any better than they? Have we seen without knowing? Have we not seen the Lord's ways and works? Have we not heard the gospel truth week after week? Have we not seen his providential dealings with our lives? Well, let us ask ourselves whether there has been any decline in our communion with God. Less prayerfulness, less closeness in our walk with him, less enjoyment in the worship of his house. If so, Unbelief is sure to manifest itself. Now Spurgeon asked of this wilderness generation who continue to go astray in their hearts and refuse to know God's ways to such a tender shepherd, not for a day or for a month, but for 40 years and not even for a couple of unbelievers, but that of an entire nation. And he asked, which shall we most wonder at? At the cruel insolence of man or the tender patience of the Lord? It is remarkable that the Lord waited patiently for 40 years. But if we presume upon God's patience and His grace long enough, He will leave you to yourself. And full apostasy is present when God says to anyone, they shall not enter my rest. The climax of the quotation of Psalm 95 is this declared oath from God. Now in the Greek text, 
this statement begins with an if. This is an elliptical form of a Hebrew negative oath, which regularly was prefaced with some statement calling upon God. For example, in Ruth 1.17, it says, May the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. The meaning was, nothing but death shall part us. And so translated in another way in Hebrews, the full expression of this statement goes something like this. If they shall enter my rest, then my name is not Jehovah. And so in our translations, the meaning is emphatically, they shall not enter my rest. Now all the author of Hebrews have done at this point is quote Psalm 95. But now he seeks to drive home the lessons of Psalm 95 in their hearts. There is a logical connection in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, with the beginning of verse 12, take care, brethren. In other words, the Holy Spirit has spoken of these things not to provide some historical account of the wilderness experience, but to speak with great force and admonition in our day. And before we move on to these admonitions, we should not miss the way that he addresses his hears. He calls them by that affectionate term, brethren, meaning he believes that there are true brothers and sisters in Christ amongst them. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and a man can be corrupted by few. It's very similar the way that Psalm 95 was actually constructed. Psalm 95 is a call to worship. It's telling us how to worship. And upon giving the call, come, let us worship and bow down, and giving, giving the reason for the call, for he is our God and we are his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, comes this very unexpected warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so even in our gathering, while the majority of us profess faith in Christ and even our members of this church, the immediate danger is that there should arise an evil and unbelieving heart in our midst. Hear then the warning. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Here we are to take care, to watch out for unbelief. Not just unbelief, but an evil, unbelieving heart. Now it, is, it has been well said that unbelief is the child not of the head, but of the heart. Man does his thinking with his heart. Man's intellect follows the heart. The heart represented the center of a man's being, and my reasoning then follows my heart. Proverbs 4.23 says it like this, Out of the heart are the issues of life. It is always good to know the source of the disease in order to apply the right remedy. If the source of unbelief were the intellect, if it was a matter of a mind, we could sit down and we could work out the best intellectual answer for every argument. But the truth is, unbelief is a matter of the heart, an evil heart. That's why from the beginning to the very end of this section, the writer is pleading in this chapter, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
We are to be vigilant and having a watchful guard over our, our own hearts. It is this un, evil, unbelieving heart that we must watch over because it leads to falling away from the living God. It is specifically this we are to watch out for. The hardening by the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 79 tells us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And since you and I can't even trust our hearts, sin fools us. It deceives us, misleads us, it beguiles us and tricks us. The author is reminding of how deceitful sin can be. <laughs> I mean, just think of those Israelites we're reminded of in Psalm 95 who witnessed the ten plagues Delivered from Egypt's army by the parting of the Red Sea. Think of the pillar of fire and the cloud as constant reminders of God's presence with them. And yet, throughout their wilderness journey, Israel murmured and tested and rebelled, fell into idolatry and rebelled against God. That is how deceitful sin can be. It can blind you to the obvious. Why would a husband, after years of marriage with children, Leave his wife for another woman. Why does someone click on a computer screen and watch something that they shouldn't? Why do people hold a grudge against someone and even vengeful in their attitude when they have been forgiven all in Christ? Why do people rush headlong in the pursuit of their career while neglecting the body of Christ and neglecting their souls? Why are we so willing to trust the news or the agenda of the culture than trusting in the word of God. Why do we squander so much of our time and consume ourselves with worldly things like money and materialism and reputation? Why have some yet to trust in Christ for salvation and continue loving their own righteousness and wisdom? Because sin is a deceiver. Listen, we wouldn't fall into sin so easily were it not for its power to beguile and dazzle us with this promise of pleasure and reward and satisfaction. But his promises are always deceitful. Sin advertises pleasure, but as the Puritan Thomas Brooks says, sin presents the bait and he hides the hook. It presents the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and the misery that will certainly follow the committing sin. Friend, if temptation came to you and asked, would you like a few moments of pleasure or satisfaction in exchange for months and years of misery? We wouldn't go for that. Oh, but sin shows the charm and it hides the stinger away and we never see it until it's too late. And by this device, Satan has deceived our first parents. Sin entered the world through the deceitfulness of sin. Satan dangled that fruit before Eve's eyes and said, you will surely not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the fruit was very pleasing to look at. And that while the fruit with this dazzling appeal dangled before her eyes, the serpent told her that God's command was burdensome and too harsh and not true. And the longer that she looked at the fruit, the more preposterous God's command seemed to her. And so she took the bait, the sweet, the charm of the fruit. But the serpent hides the hook, the shame, and the wrath, 
and the misery that will come after. He promises the soul pleasure and joy, but he intends shame and confusion and discontentment. He knows how to keep you from, from God so that your eyes are blinded to see his holiness, to see Christ in the price of our redemption, to see the full wages of our sin in order for you to easily fall into that sin. Now, there are all other kinds of tricks and devices that come with the deceitfulness of sin. It says to some, oh, you really need this sin. To some of us, sin entices us by saying, it may be sin, but it's a very minor sin. To others of us, sin deceives us by saying, well, everyone else in the church is doing it. Still others, sin says, well, even the greatest of Christians have committed the sin. Or how about this one? If you sin, you can always go to Christ. After all, God is full of mercy. Remember that song, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. You can give in to the sin then. And I think the most dangerous and most deceiving amongst us here today is clinging on to our own righteousness, looking down on others for their sins as if we had righteousness apart from Christ. This love for our own righteousness is the greatest deceit of all. And here is the danger of the deceitfulness of sin. It leads to the hardening of the heart. Sin first deceives and then hardens. This hardening, the passive tense of harden, is important here in verse 13 because it indicates a progressive nature. And with sin as an agent to deceive, it inevitably leads you to an irretrievably hopeless position, a calloused and hardened heart no longer hears God. No longer seeks God is a point of no return. You know, every morning I've been waking up, looking at my weather, and it says freezing warning. Well, the, the heart hardens like a freezing over a pond on a frosty night. At first, the process of hardening happens with a thin film of ice so slender that a pin or a needle would fall through. It goes undetected by the naked eye. But then gradually, imperceptibly, with a thin layer, gradually, it gets more and more hardened, and then it solidifies. So it is with man's heart. It happens with a thin layer, imperceptible. But gradually, the heart gets more calloused, more hardened. And finally, he can look you straight in the eye without any sensitivity of his conscience and turn his back on God. Take care. Watch over your soul, says the preacher. Be on guard. Oh, but the preacher is not done yet with his exhortation. Our preacher now points to the remedy of unbelief. Look at verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the grand strategy to fight against unbelief, not only to watch a watchful guard over our own hearts, but also to watch out for our brothers, sisters in Christ. This is what the Greek word encourage speaks of. The word is parakaleo. The prefix para means to come alongside, and the verb kaleo means to call out and encourage. And the picture then that we have is to come alongside one another daily, exhorting one another in the faith. Exhortation comes in many forms comes in the form of admonition sometimes and reproof. Other times, it's a heart that cheers others on. 
Exhortation comforts when your fellow believer is down in the dumps experiencing grief. It lifts a brother or sister up in despair. Sometimes it shows compassion and forgiveness or praise for others. And this exhortation has as its goal that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Christian cannot walk alone. We are far more likely to be beguiled and impressed by the deceitfulness of sin when we walk alone and are isolated than when we have Christian friends beside us telling us that that is nonsense and garbage. Daily encouragement of one another within the household of faith is ordained by God as a means for bringing his people home and guarding them against the deceitfulness of sin. And notice, we are to encourage one another daily because the problem exists daily. Christian fellowship and mutual watchfulness over others then cannot be fulfilled in a once a week attending a Sunday service and then slipping out right after. But with regularity and with great frequency, we are to exhort one another. This is your holy obligation. What we do here at Midweek, the accountability groups, the book clubs you're part of, the coffee meetups, the daily texts and emails and phone calls to check up on a brother or sister is a great bulwark against sin's deception. Now, I'm always encouraged by those who work all day and commute over an hour just to get to midweek. But part of me is very saddened when there are those who regularly miss the opportunities of fellowship at church because they say it's too hard of a commute or work has been too taxing. But if our goal is to persevere to the end and the strategy that God has given is mutual watchfulness, would it not be worth the commute? Would it not be worth losing some leisure time? What price would you put on your soul? If not midweek, then we must find some way to daily exhort one another lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a great illustration of this in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Bunyan shows the importance of exhorting one another daily. As a man named Christian is journeying to the celestial city, he comes across a fellow believer named Hopeful, and instantly they form a strong companionship. Bunyan writes that they entered a brotherly covenant and agreed to be companions. And as they covenanted together to walk together and to watch each other's souls, Christian and Hopeful journey together And it was evident how profitable and strengthening their companionship was to their faith. Soon they came across another traveler, a man named Bayans from the town of Fair Speech. Pulling their discernment together, Christian and Hopeful realized that this man was someone to avoid. Next, they encountered a group led by Mr. Hold the World, who tried to tempt them in seeking to this honest gain. And together they reproved him. But next came Demas who called to them to depart from the way, promising a place filled with riches of this world. But this time, Hopeful was deceived and wanted to take a look. But Christian warned him, I have heard of this place. The treasure is a snare to those that seek it. He exhorted Hopeful, let us now go a step closer. Let us keep on our way. And the two companions went safely on their pilgrimage. Later, they came to Doubting Castle where they were thrown into a terrible dungeon. And here it was Christian who faltered, falling prey to the giant despair's temptation to kill himself as the only escape. And this time it was Hopeful who kept his faith, recalling God's commandments. And with his help, Christian found the key called promise 
that opened the door to let them escape Doubting Castle. And then there was that last touching scene of Christian and hopeful, almost at home at the celestial city, but not before they had to cross the river of death. And as Christian especially began to despair in his mind of the prospect of death, hopeful was right there to keep his brother's head above water. And hopeful continually comforted Christian brother. I see the gate. I see the gate. And men are ready to, to receive us. But Christian would answer, it is you. It is you they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, hopeful said to Christian. And they're reminding him to be of good cheer and to point him to Christ who makes him whole. And with those encouragements, they both took courage and they crossed the river. What a wonderful picture this is of the kind of exhortation that we are obligated to give to one another. If left to ourselves, we are weak and vulnerable, but the strength of having another believer to come alongside us, to encourage and exhort us, not only helps sin lose its force, but strengthens us to endure to the end together. While it is still called today, encourage one another. Now is God's time. We are not promised tomorrow. Today is what we have. Let us encourage one another. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Friend, if you are here, you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you're here and you realize that after 20 plus years of attending church, you've been poisoned by the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief, then today can be the day of salvation for you. Today will not last forever. Now is the time to turn from sin. Now is the time to believe and follow Christ. Don't put it off. Others have delayed and they have perished forever. One of the greatest deceitfulness of sin is that you have time, that there's no rush, that you have tomorrow. No, all we have is today. And so today, if you hear his voice, trust in Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how loving and how gracious You are to give us today. How loving for You to not only give us encouragements to consider Jesus in order to endure to the end, but also to give us strong warnings in order for us to search our hearts. And for those who have discovered their state of unbelief, those who have not known You, oh, we pray, remove their heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. We believe only the physician of souls, Jesus Christ, can give them a new heart. Please do so by Your grace. And for us who are believers, we confess how much we have been beguiled by the deceitfulness of sin. Cleanse our hearts, we pray, and renew a right spirit within us and make us vigilant and watchful over our hearts. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.